Kia ora everyone and welcome back to another episode of Antarctica Unfrozen Season 2. Today's knowledge-rich guest is Dr. Natalie Robinson of Niwa. Natalie is a marine physicist specialising in polar oceanography. But she's also an amazing voice for the future generation of environmental scientists with some priceless advice. There is much to digest in this episode and we touch on various subjects throughout. But by the end of it, your understanding of Antarctic and by default global oceanography will be much closer to crystal clear. Natalie, thank you for uh, taking the time out to talk to me today. You're welcome, thanks. Uh, Just to get off to a hot start, how do you describe oceanography to your kids, for example? Uh, Well, I describe it as physics for the ocean. When you're looking at the physics of the ocean, you're looking at different parts of it, in a way? That's true. The ocean is made up of layers, so you can think about what's called stratification, that just describes the different layers in the ocean. Right, much like the atmosphere, if you like. Exactly. Awesome. In fact, you can think of the atmosphere and the ocean as pretty similar counterparts. In terms of distributing heat around the globe, the ocean actually can move a lot more energy. So when people are thinking about climate, they tend to think about the atmosphere and not about the ocean because totally. we don't have a sort of everyday experience of it. Exactly. No, it's a really, it's a really important point. What's a major uh, factor in the ocean that drives something like that, the, the, that drives the, the stratification or drives the movement of water in the ocean? Uh, well, similar to the atmosphere, there are distinct features. So, I mean, you might have heard of the Gulf Stream as being kind of the, the key feature in the global ocean. Because the Gulf Stream is there, say, for example, London gets the climate it does and not that of Moscow, which, it is, which is at a similar latitude. What's the equivalent of the... I suppose we have our own version of the Gulf Stream down here in the Southern Hemisphere, do we? I mean, there are definitely... Like, the East Australian current comes down the coast of Australia and that's kind of quite a defined current and moves heat around. Um, we actually get a branch of that over... To New Zealand as well, so right. that affects our climate as well. We have the Southland current that comes up the eastern side of the South Island as well. And these are all pretty significant ocean currents that are moving heat and um, nutrients around. The Southern Ocean, how does it affect us up here in New Zealand, for example? The Southern Ocean is quite interesting. Um, it's the only one that can circulate the globe without an interruption. Right. So it actually um, connects with all of this, the all southern of the hemisphere oceans. ocean basins. Right. But it, it at the same time, because it's circulating around Antarctica, serves to kind of isolate Antarctica from the rest of the world, which is the reason that Antarctica is cold. That whole continent, that whole landmass, is actually not only separated in terms of its, its geographical location being at the bottom of the world, but it also has the significance of a disconnection with its ocean, for example, right, where it's got one ocean surrounding the entire continent. That's right, because the ocean is able to um, continue flowing unhindered around right. the continent. What's important about understanding the ocean? You know, why, why should we really put the time and effort into the research, into understanding uh, ocean currents and, and how these layers work? The ocean is really quite an unappreciated component of the climate system. If I can give you a sort of a, an example that people might be able to connect with, 
we know that atmospheric temperatures have increased by about a degree since the start of the Industrial Revolution. But that heating of the atmosphere represents only about 3% of the heat that has entered the climate system as a result of human activities. Right. In fact, 93% of it, and that was in 2015, they made that assessment. So 93% of the heat that we are responsible for adding to the climate system has ended up in the ocean. Wow. So if instead all of that heat had ended up in the atmosphere... Yeah, what would that look like? Well... Hard to tell. Estimates at about 50 degrees warmer than we are now. So we wouldn't be here to tell the story. So what gives the ocean this incredible capability to act as this this heat absorber, if you like? Well, it's simply the heat capacity of the water itself. So most of the heat that's contained in the atmosphere is actually locked up in the, the water molecules that are, are that are in the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if you multiply that by how much more water there is in the ocean, you can see why that heat can be stored in the ocean I see. much more effectively than in the atmosphere. How does, how does energy get stored in the ocean? It's simply that water takes a lot of energy to heat up. That's why you have to turn your kettle up That's high right. in order to boil the water. Um, okay. Is it, does that mean the ocean is slowly heating up uh, like, a, like a kettle? Well, in the absence of our greenhouse gas effect... The atmosphere and ocean were in <laughs> equilibrium with each other. Right. So, yes, it's taking up heat in some places, but releasing it to the atmosphere in another place. So that on average it was... It was kind net of, zero kind of thing. Exactly. And we do need those greenhouse gases to to provide the heat that we need to, to survive. flourish, yeah, yeah, for life. So we're now disturbing that balance and just retaining more of the heat into our system. So a little bit more is coming into the system then is leaving then it's leaving it. again yeah. and so we're and so what what are the main impacts of that if you like on specifically sea ice if that helps you well that's an interesting one. i mean you can see what's happening in the arctic the ocean water that is forming the ice is um, warming and so it's making it harder to form that ice right um, and so and so that's sea ice that we're talking about. So sea ice is that type of ice that forms from the ocean. It's typically an annual process. Summer to winter type stuff. Yeah, as the temperature, the atmospheric temperatures drop towards winter and then through the winter is the growing season. They get cold enough that the surface of the ocean freezes. Right. Um, the same happens around Antarctica, but it, because it's an open system, it's not trapped within a basin like in the Arctic. Yeah. So although we know that the ocean is generally warming it's been a bit of a puzzle because over the, f- the 40 years the first 40 years of the satellite um, observations uh, Antarctic sea ice was just trending towards covering a little bit more of the ocean right right so the, I mean the question is still open was it was it actually more sea ice or was it sort of the same amount spread thinner because we can see how much it covers, but we can't see how thick it is right. from the satellites. I see. And then in the last few years, so that might be seven years now, Yeah. there was a point where it started just to seem to turn back and maybe retreating. We actually don't have enough data yet to know whether that's a change in the trend or just interannual variability still. What are you studying at the moment? And what have you studied in the past? From the time I became a graduate student, it's all been Antarctic oceanography for me. But I work quite close to the coast. I work actually at the intersection of that sea ice, so as far south as sea ice forms in Antarctica. 
and that's at the intersection with what we call ice shelves. So this is the glacial ice that forms in the centre of the continent, yep. and it just keeps rolling out towards the coast. So these are the continent-sized, uh, for the lack of a better word, chunks of ice that accumulate from the centre of the continent and then slowly but surely, like all glaciers, go down the hill towards the ocean, right? What would you call that that main bit of ice there? Because that's not ice shelf, is it? No. While it's still on the continent, that's forming the Antarctic ice sheet. Ice sheet, okay. Um, although I suppose the extensions where it becomes ice shelf, so these are where it just keeps rolling out over the ocean and you've got this these huge uh, floating, well, shelves of glacial ice. So it's fresh ice that's come off the continent. Right. Um, How thick can these kinds of pieces of ice be sometimes? Well, so the Ross Ice Shelf, which is immediately, well, not immediately, but directly south of New Zealand. Yes. That's about the same size as the country of France. That's crazy, eh? And I can't believe that. <laughs> well, it's pretty hard to get your head around. It's totally, it's, oh, I can't believe it. And um, in terms of thickness, it can be up to about 700 metres thick at the point where it leaves the continent. And then during its cycle, as it, rolls out towards the point at the front where it eventually breaks off as iceberg. Um, there's processes of th- both thinning and melting from underneath, so it ends up at about 300 metres at the front. Awesome. Okay, so there's that gradual change and, and the ice is getting thinner as it protrudes out onto the ocean. Your field of work looks at that intersection, right, kind of where the ice shelf uh, ends, if you like, and, and how that interacts then with the ocean that it's meeting. That's exactly right. At the front of the ice shelf, yes, that's right. But the ocean itself doesn't end there. No, of it course not. It carries on flowing in into the what they call the cavity. Where, so it's got this, and that's underneath the shelf. Underneath the ice shelf. Okay. Yeah. And so, what's happening under there? What's what? What should we care about? That's happening underneath the big shelf. Ah, well, <laughs> these ice shelves play a critical role in determining how fast that glacial ice is going to roll off the land. Right. They provide. The yeah, term yeah. is buttressing, so it holds right. back the land, uh, the land-based ice. Absolutely. So if you thin these ice shelves by melting them from underneath, or um, they have less resistance exactly. or, or ability to buttress the landmass on the continent That's of right. ice. Right. Yep. Okay. And so, of course, that feeds directly into how fast sea level is going to rise. Totally. And uh, so that's kind of the main, the big one that people that's are worried about. That's the big about. question. Yeah. Um, but it will also have other effects in terms of um, ocean circulation and the distribution of heat because if instead of having your normal ocean structure, you flood the top of it with fresh meltwater, right, yep. then you're changing how the ocean operates. And Immediately, straight it, away. Well, I mean, it is... It's a long... Pro- when yeah. we're talking on global scale, <laughs> yes, we are talking longer time frames, but... In, in a respect, that is what's happening, right? So you're getting this fresh water that's coming off the ice shelf because it's being melted because of that interaction with the warmer seawater. What what happens in that space? What's what's uh, What should we be concerned about or what should we be curious about? Well, that's a good distinction, actually. People may have heard of the Amundsen Sea or Pine Island Glacier or Thwaites Glacier. These are the ones that are melting the fastest. Right because the water that's getting in under there is uh, warmer. The Ross Ice Shelf seems to be in a more stable state at the moment um, because the water that is under there is relatively cold. I see. So, yes, there's a distinction between concern and curiosity. So in the case of the Ross, which is 
the work that I do, well, I'm working on. <laughs> Absolutely. We really are trying to understand the baseline processes um, right. while we think they are still baseline processes. Right. So there's work going on all the way from what we call the grounding line, which is where the ice first meets the ocean, yep. all the way to the carving front, which is the front edge. Which is that classic image that we associate with sort of climate change, the, the dropping of these big faces, sheet faces of ice falling into the ocean, right? Yeah, um, James Clark Ross described them as being as impenetrable as the cliffs of Dover. Oh, wow, there you go. <laughs> really, it's quite interesting, though, because even though that's the image that we maybe associate most with melting ice, it's not the case, right? Well, the Ross definitely is melting, and there's patches of it that are melting quite fast. Because it's so hard to get data from it, we don't actually know yet whether that's any faster than it has in the past. We suspect that at the moment the average melt rate is probably still quite stable, and this is where it connects with sea ice. The water that's actually filling that cavity is a byproduct of the sea ice formation that happens beyond the front of it. So when the sea ice forms, uh, you're left with this coverage of fresh ice yep. sitting on top of the salty ocean that it formed from. Yep. So the salt has to be squeezed out, right. rejected. Yes. So you end up with this brine that comes out. Why does it get rejected? It just can't be accommodated in the crystal structure. Okay. So when you get right down to the molecular level, there's yeah, yeah. no space for brine. Okay. As you sort of build up sea ice, you end up with these brine drainage channels. So right. there are actually little pockets of salty water but it's not actually within the ice crystal structure itself, so okay. it all has to get squeezed out. And the older the ice is, the more of that salt that gets squeezed out. Okay. But it's that water that basically fills the ice shelf cavity, and because it's formed in the process of making the sea ice, it's constrained to the surface freezing point, so right. it's, it's relatively cold. Yep. But, but even then... The surface freezing point, once you put it under pressure, so 700 metres of ice yes, at the back of, of the Ross Ice Shelf, yeah. Yeah, now it's able to melt at depth. But you can see that's quite different to putting... So so the temperature of that water would be sort of minus 1.8. Um, but you can right. see that that would be a lot slower to melt than if you were putting water that's, say, 4 degrees into Absolutely. that cavity. And so where, where are those uh, differences in, in cold water, really cold water being underneath the shelf versus that warmer water being underneath the shelf? Where's that, where are those big differences on the continent? So in front of the Ross Ice Shelf, every year what's called a polynia forms. So that, these are described in everyday terms as ice factories. So right. it's where the, the sea ice, as it's forming, just keeps getting blown away right. by the winds that are whistling down from the polar plateau across the ice shelf and then out over the ocean. Awesome. Just keeps sweeping this new ice form that's forming, keeping the surface of the ocean open. So you just keep forming new sea ice right. in these locations. And that the Ross Sea Polynia, this ice factory, will stretch all the way across the front of the Ross Ice Shelf, so more than 500 kilometres long. Right. In contrast, if you go around the corner to the Amundsen Sea, that's where you've actually got access from what's called circumpolar deep water. It's a different type of water, and it carries a lot more heat. That that water can actually get directly into the ice shelf cavity itself. So you actually have and completely that's the major water. concern for when it comes to melting ice, right? When that warm water gets under and into the cavity, and 
and just stays there and circulates there continuously with more warm water, that just that's going to equal melting, right? There's kind of a bit of a feedback on that though, because if you're producing lots of meltwater and that's going to sit at the surface, then it can create kind of a barrier to stop that warmer water keeping on accessing the ice. Right. But you actually have to generate quite a lot of melting to to end up with that sort of barrier. So these are all actually active questions right now, just all these balances that determine exactly how fast the ice is going to melt and then and then how fast it's going to let the ice slide off the continent. What is in its simplest form? What's the ocean made out of? What, what are the physics behind the ocean? The fundamental information that we're looking for is always temperature and salinity. From that information, you can identify where the water that you are looking at has come from, uh, what was its original, so what processes it's been subject to. Then you can add other information as well. Um, you might be interested in um, oxygen content or, or if you're thinking about the biology, um, you might be looking for a chlorophyll trace as well. This is all information that can, or, or even isotopes as well, you can analyse for that. And these are all adding to the picture of um, understanding exactly what's been happening to that water. But I guess temperature and salinity are kind of the baseline for any oceanographic study. How many expeditions have you now done to the ice? Well, I've had six. What does your kind of uh, science expedition look like on the ice? So I work on the sea ice that's close to Scott Base and at the front of the, the ice shelf there. So we'll get into Scott Base and spend five or seven days getting ready to move out into the field. And when we do, we have a series of shipping containers that live down there um, that have been converted for our purposes. Mm. So we've got one that um, houses a generator, which means we can then electrify the rest of them. Uh, we've got one for cooking our meals and eating in. We've got some accommodation ones. We've got you know bunk beds to... Yeah, yeah. Um, but really the, the critical part of our field camp to shipping containers that have a piece of the floor that can be removed. So right. They're set up as laboratories. Little labs on the ice. Exactly. So we can lift the floor out, melt our way through the sea ice, and then we have continuous access to the ocean from inside a nice warm shipping container. Mm, that sounds really nice. Because otherwise, what? it's a fairly hostile place to work in, right? Well, okay, so that's what I have done most recently. We also can work in a sort of more mobile fashion where we're living in tents um, and simply like drilling through the sea ice to get our access to the ocean. In that case, yes, not only are you more exposed to the elements, but you're also subject to the weather as to whether you can actually mm. go and do something on a day-to-day -day basis. What's sort of driven you to, to become an Antarctic scientist in that respect and, and, and study through oceanography in Antarctica? What's sort of, uh, you know, what drives you in that respect? It's kind of been an evolution of reasons for me. I mean, initially, I mean, you can't get past how fabulous it is to be able to work in Antarctica. Um, it's just it's just Phenomenal, an amazing privilege hey? to yeah. be able to do that. But as I started to get into the work, I realised that actually this was a whole new field that was just in the process of opening up. Like, literally as a master's student, I could read all the literature relevant to my field. I mean, that's completely blown 
apart now because, yeah. so, you know, so much more has been done. Really, it was a to-be-discovered kind exactly. of field. This right. aspect of discovery was really appealing. Totally. It still is. Yeah. But as I become more and more aware of just the role that Antarctica plays in our climate system, it's become you know, imperative and, and a real investment for me just to add to that body of knowledge. Totally. Also in that time I've had three kids, so, yeah. you know, I kind of have more of a future focus than I ever did. <laughs> totally. How does how does having kids sort of impact this type of work for you? Because uh, I, I suppose if we're talking about Antarctica, we're usually talking about climate change. If we're talking about climate change, we're talking about the future of humanity. How do you kind of feel on that front and, and have, have kids made any difference to your motivation and work? Oh, it'd be hard to say no to that. My kids are more important to me than the science itself. And it's not just that I worry about their future and what it is they're going to have to face, but there's so many uncertainties that are actually worrying them now that you know, they're looking to me for answers that we as a community just don't have. I would love to be able to provide more certainty and to be able to, you know, skill them up for the future that they have in front of them. Totally. And I guess, you know, we have a lot of information, but because the future that's in front of us depends on how we respond to the situation we're in, I... You know, mm. <laughs> you want to try and help uh, make that clear what needs to be done, I suppose, because that's what it's all about, right? Like when I think about why, why do we do science, it's to reduce the uncertainty. That's the classic go-to, right? Exactly. But yes. why do we want to reduce the uncertainty? What's actually important about that idea of reducing uncertainty? Why do we need certainty? As a as a species, we're invested in the status quo. We like and understand things the way they are, and the. F- the knowledge that they are changing and are going to continue changing is, I guess, unsettling because, well, we're going to have to respond and, and make changes to how we live, where we live. The work I do is kind of a little tiny piece of the climate puzzle, um, and it's not until you start to pull people's work together that you get a bigger picture and are actually st- starting to make statements. The area I work in is understanding how the ice and the ocean interact with each other so that we can better predict how changes to the ocean structure or changes to the heat content or changes to the circulation will actually change what happens to the ice. And that's both in terms of the ice shelf, that that land-based ice that's coming out over the ocean, or in terms of the sea ice, which has, um, if we return to the Gulf Stream, um, the fact that that Gulf Stream operates at all as a result of the sea ice formation and this brine rejection, the salt being rejected, um, is one end of what they call the global ocean conveyor. Right. So you're pushing this cold, briny water away from Antarctica and it has to get replaced, and from the Arctic, and so it has to get replaced by this warmer water from the tropics heading towards the poles. So, yeah, as I say, the, the Gulf Stream is the classic example. What's important about warm water replacing cold water or cold water replacing warm water? You know, why why is this such a big deal? Well, I'm going to give you two answers. Perfect. One is that it's important for the people who live there because it determines the climate that they live in. The other is that this global ocean overturning, 
they estimate it takes about a thousand years to complete a cycle and it's not a simple structure so there's lots of branches and things but if you just think about a thousand years to make a, a cycle that means that any changes that we're enforcing on the system now that are going into the ocean are going to take a thousand years before they fully work themselves all the way through the system so any changes we make are sort of committing us to very long-term changes where the ocean is involved. Right. Well, I mean, this comes back to the idea of the equilibrium as well, right? So we've kind of knocked the system out of equilibrium, and you can imagine that because it has to work its way through this very large system, a thousand years to actually come back into equilibrium from the changes that we've made in the last hundred and 150 years. But we're not slowing down the changes that we're making, we're only hitting the system harder, which is only going to make it take longer to come back to a sort of new equilibrium. Right, okay, and why And why would that be, for example, why would it take longer possibly to come back to the equilibrium? Because we're not slowing down, like, right. we're not stopping the changes that we've been making, we're not reversing. This ocean connection between the ice shelf regime the ocean that's circulating underneath the ice shelf and the sea ice. That that connection between the two is kind of where I specialise. Right. And so we have water that's flowing out from underneath the ice shelf and it's containing quite a significant volume of newly melted ice shelf. Right. And the reverse of the process, remember I said that even though it's at the surface freezing point, once you push it down, it's able to melt ice at depth. Yes. Well, so the reverse of the process also happens when you've got newly melted ice, well, it's water now, Absolutely. at depth. And, and that's it, that super cold water, yeah? Well, it's super cool by the time it comes out to the top because right. now the pressure's come off it. Okay. So by the time we observe it from the sea ice at the front, so even taking into account the salt content, it's still colder than its freezing point. Right. Because it's only a little bit supercooled, um, it's not enough to spontaneously nucleate. So you have this really weird water that's it's just waiting to freeze. Yeah. Water's quite fussy, so it will only freeze onto uh, existing ice crystals. Right, okay. And this is where having that ice is around is important, right? Yeah, so the water, the flow of water that comes out from underneath the ice shelf actually carries these little ice seeds with it and then each of these ice seeds are are growing because it's all in super cooled water and they'll keep growing until they reach a point where they're so buoyant they overcome the suspension by turbulence and so you get these you can kind of think of them as like autumn leaves um, about the size of your palm will float up to yeah, land yeah. at the base of the sea ice and they form in their billions and billions so when I go out to my field site I have to drill or melt through two to two and a half metres of solid sea ice. But then underneath that, we can have between, well, from zero, right up to six, seven or eight metres of these individual platelet crystals, they're called, that have have just floated up and landed against the base of the sea ice. Right. And how long, I mean, why don't they sort of compress or, you know, what's, what's sort of the deal there? Or they are compressing. Slowly but surely. Exactly. Slowly but surely is the key. Um, so when you're talking about it under sea ice, it only has one year to um, do whatever it's going to do. It's got a lifetime, hey, exactly. really. But the same process happens under ice shelves. It's given a different name. It's called marine ice when it's under an ice shelf. But in that case, the ice stays around at the surface, so it's got 
as long as it needs just to keep building up and then it does compress under its own buoyancy and eventually will become incorporated as as a solid part of the ice shelf itself. But it has a bit of a different structure to the normal glacial ice. And so these bands of marine ice under the ice shelves have been implicated in both um, potentially helping the ice shelves to collapse or they could alternatively provide a sort of amending and provide some healing so that the ice shelves are less vulnerable. Totally. So... That sounds been like a, quite an interesting area to, to sort of start to understand more about the more healing type interactions, then that sounds like there could be progress there in some, you know, to some degree. Exactly. Uh, that, I mean, that's the reason I really like the work that I do. We do it under sea ice where we are at the kind of the start of this whole process so that we can understand the effect that this has on the ocean. But my interest really is in how does this stuff affect the long-term evolution of the ice shelves right. because that's where you know you can have an effect on the whole ice sheet. That's right. That's a, that's a small bit of understanding with a possible huge kind of result in understanding in terms of the ice shelf. We're talking about the cork of the bottle, right? That's a good analogy, yeah. Cool. And as I say, these, these marine ice bands have been sort of flagged as a, a region we need to know more about. Right. Um, but they're so hard to study under when you've already got four or 500 metres of ice to get through. How does one even go about <laughs> trying to start studying something like that? Well, I mean, you could you could do the work that I've been doing, which is using the sea ice as an analogy. Right. Uh, and that then feeds into, like, our actual... Because the sea ice is like a mini version of these huge ice shelves. You can think about it exactly like that. Cool. Yep. And that feeds into, you know, improving our physical understanding. So then we can start to build numerical simulations or, right. or models that yes. that replicate these processes. And the better those models are, the more appropriate they are to start moving to different applications like the ice shelf. In the case of the Ross Ice Shelf, there have been holes drilled through So they use hot water to get through. That's right, the hot I, water drill. I think five times in its history there's wow. been... Um, because it's a massive mission, hey. Ocean data collected from beneath the Ross Ice Shelf. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's a it's a huge investment. So every little piece of those data is very precious. But that's that's forty years of time span, an area of ocean the size of France, and there's five pieces of data. You know, so it's <laughs> we do rely a lot on improving our physical understanding so that we can improve these these models. That's. A lot of how science is done, right? We try and isolate a small bit of understanding that we can really get our heads around. Then we can try and adapt that knowledge to to understanding a new field or something that was just bigger in scale in this example. I think that's that's probably true. It's kind of amplified when it comes to Antarctica uh, just because access everywhere is so difficult. What would you recommend to a young scientist um, to do and and you know what? What were you, what were some things maybe you wish someone had told you when you were a, a, a starting out sort of young scientist? <laughs> For me, I think just taking opportunities that you're offered is really important. I mean, you never know what they're going to lead to, but they're probably always going to be interesting. But I think young people have a perception that you have to be really smart to be a scientist. I can tell you from experience that is not true, but <laughs> but it does help if you've got if you've built up the right skills and if you have perseverance. I mean, 
as soon as you enter science, you start doing things that come out with a result you weren't expecting. You can call that a failure. Oh, stink, it didn't work. Or you can say, okay, so I found one thing that doesn't work. Let's try the next thing. Um, That's a fantastic side of science, really, isn't it? It's an, <laughs> it's an embracing of failure. Exactly. and We can learn if, a lot from that. Exactly. If you've failed in a way that no one else has failed... That's called progress. Exactly. We don't call that failure. <laughs> yeah. We call that learning. Yeah. Totally. Oh, well. So there you go. Be persistent. And if you fail at first, it could be a positive thing. <laughs> well, sure. It's, it's, um, it's pushing the boundaries of knowledge either way, and that's what science is. Yeah. Really, it's just about having some curiosity and, and, and the skills and the motivation to to use that curiosity to find out new information. Exactly. I know, it's um that's a really beautiful sentiment to I think finish on, Catalie. Sure. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to learn and listen. More information about the episode and guest can be found in the show notes for those interested. And please leave a review if you've enjoyed tuning in. Subscribe to Antarctica Unfrozen wherever you listen to keep up to date on new guests, topics and ideas of the icy environmental kind. This season was made possible thanks to Pride Conservation, a boutique social enterprise from Aotearoa, New Zealand, on a mission to contribute to the conservation movement both here at home and globally. For more information and to help be part of the movement, check out www.prideconservation.co.nz. That's it for now. I'm Sinead Monty. And I'm Harry Seeger. And, and until, until next time, time stay cool. Stay cool. <laughs>